0: The text for the sermon this afternoon is the Word of God, as the church has summarized it in Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Here in Lord's Day 5, the church confesses the following. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that His justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not, on the contrary. We daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? one who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. So far, the reading from the Catechism. Following the proclamation of God's word, we will rise and sing together as our initial response to the sermon, the words of Psalm 79, the stanzas three and five. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with Lord's Day 5, the Catechism has shifted to the second section of what needs to be known in order to live and die in the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ. Having considered the horror of sin and misery in Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4, the believer can now move to the confession of how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. It's joyful news, to say the least. And this section actually begins with a quick recap of the previous three Lord's Days. You find that recap in question 12. And there you also have the nature of the deliverance that is required in short form. That matter of deliverance, which begins here in Lord's Day 5, continues through to Lord's Day 31... And there it shows how one is kept in that realm of deliverance through the keys of the kingdom, namely the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. Now if you look at Lord's Day 5, the key word there is the word deliverance. And if you turn to the scriptures, you see that there are many accounts highlighting how the Lord would deliver his people at different times in their history. One can think of how he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, how God delivered his people from the hands of their enemies countless times as they live in the promised land. He also delivered his people from their 70-year exile in Babylon. Each of those narratives, truly amazing in its own right. But the deliverance that is dealt with now in our confession surpasses them all. But, before the confession goes into the details of this deliverance, how it has been obtained by the Son of God, some of the basics are first set in place. It would be nice if we could move right to the cross and speak about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered in our place there, but the confession, as you'll notice, takes a different approach. It does get to the cross eventually, but it builds up in a slower manner. And what this does is help us to see more clearly the full picture of the deliverance that we have received. Furthermore, we're also presented with a more complete picture of the God who has delivered us in His grace. I bring you His word this afternoon under the following theme. God mercifully allows for deliverance from punishment and a return to favor. We're going to consider three things. First, the marvel of this deliverance. Secondly, we'll look at the terms for this deliverance. And finally, we'll consider the provider of this deliverance. Brothers and sisters, when you look at Lord's Day 5, what you see is that this whole matter of deliverance is presented in a very unique manner. Before talking about how it's possible that one can escape, there's first a reminder of the reality addressed in the previous Lord's days. Question 12 begins with the confession that according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. And there's actually a shift that's taking place. Our confession acknowledges at this point everything dealt with in the previous Lord's days is true. There's no longer an attempt to hide from that reality. And that's exactly what you see in Lord's days three and four. There's an attempt to find any open door possible to escape from the reality of our sin. But now the believer acknowledges that due to our original and our actual sins, We deserve to experience God's punishment now in the present and forever in eternity. That's the only reality that we deserve to know of ourselves, is God's punishment. It's an important thing to consider. That word, deserve, it's one that frequently appears in people's vocabulary. People feel as though I deserve something new. I deserve recognition. I deserve a promotion. I deserve something better. And when deserve is used in that sense, there's a feeling of pride, entitlement that sneaks into one's attitude. Well, our confession directly addresses what people actually deserve and it's nothing good either. The only thing that people truly deserve, the only thing people are really entitled to is God's temporal and eternal punishment on sin. That's what people earn for themselves. And notice that the Catechism in question 12 speaks about God's righteous judgment. There's a confession that this sentence of temporal and eternal punishment is not arbitrary, but it perfectly fits the crime. God's not being too harsh in any way. It's a just sentence. It connects back to what was addressed in Lord's Day 4, God cannot stand the sight of sin. Every sin, no matter how small we may think about it, every sin is offensive to God's perfect holiness and righteousness, and sin must be banished from His presence forever. This is also what the Apostle Paul addresses in Romans 2. In verse 2 we read, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now to understand a bit more what Paul is saying here, we actually have to look back at chapter 1. There the apostle teaches that as part of his punishment upon sin, God actually gives people over to their sin more fully. He gives them the very things that they crave. And in verses 29 through 32, there's a list of what that debased mind looks like. I invite you to turn with me back to Romans 1. Romans 1, we're going to begin reading at verse 29. Romans 1, verse 29, God's Word says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So far. Now for the Jews, they firmly believed that God's righteous judgment was going to fall upon the Gentiles because of such things. But they also believed that they themselves as Jews would never experience that. They relied on their status as God's chosen nation. They thought that automatically spared them from the judgment. As long as they tried their best, it would all turn out okay in the end. But in chapter 2, the apostle makes it clear their thinking was completely wrong. He says, it's one thing to judge those who practice such things. But he says, in passing judgment, they were judging themselves because they practiced the exact same things. And his conclusion is the words of verse 2 that we mentioned a moment ago. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It's just That God's judgment falls upon those who live according to the debased mind filled with sin. And then that judgment, it's described a little bit later in that passage as well. Beginning in verse 8, we read that for those who obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. The conclusion of the matter at this point is beyond question. Because of original sin, and because of actual sins, man is justly sentenced to temporal and eternal punishment. He deserves God's righteous judgment. But that's not where things end. With question 12, our confession goes further. It continues, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? And Brothers and sisters, this is where the true marvel of deliverance really starts to come out and shine. Think about the different works of deliverance revealed to us in Scripture. Think of how God rescued His people from slavery in Egypt. It was a miserable situation for the people in every way. They were burdened. They were oppressed. They groaned and cried out in despair. In the end, the Lord heard their prayers and He set them free. But as incredible as that deliverance from Egypt is, this deliverance addressed in our confession is even more marvelous because we are dealing not with physical slavery in this world... We are dealing with a complete escape from God's righteous judgment and punishment. We're dealing with being set free from sin and its resulting misery. We're dealing with that matter of escaping from the eternal fire of hell. And that's why the confession takes time to work out this deliverance in a careful way. Our salvation is something we hear about each Sunday and it's proper. The gospel of salvation must continue to be proclaimed week in and week out. But there is always a danger that our deliverance becomes something routine for us. We hear about it so frequently it can easily happen we forget just how amazing our deliverance from sin from punishment, and from hell, actually is. So to hear again what we deserve, but that there is the possibility of escape, it's incredible to think about. But it's also important to notice the full nature of this deliverance. Because this deliverance is not just a matter of escaping from any form of punishment. It also includes the element of being received back into favor. With true deliverance, there is a restoration of what existed before the fall into sin. Again, the marvel of deliverance comes out. Escaping from punishment, that's already amazing. But here's the question. Let's say there was that escape from punishment and that's it. Where does that actually leave us? Simply escaping from punishment does not leave us in a position where we automatically receive God's favor. It leaves us in a position where there's still a distance from God. There's an illustration from Scripture that shows what this looks like. During the reign of King David, there were no shortage of family tensions. It's what God decreed after David's sin with Bathsheba. And one of the ways in which these tensions showed is that David's son Absalom killed his brother Ammon, and he did so because he had raped Absalom's sister. Well, after killing his brother, Absalom fled from Jerusalem three years. He lived away from his family. But eventually it was worked out. Absalom could come back to the royal city, to Jerusalem. But in 2 Samuel 14, verse 24, this is what David says. He can come back. Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. To use the language of Lord's Day 5 in describing that situation, there was escape from punishment but there was not a return to favor. And if that would be the case for us, it would be like God saying, okay, you don't have to face eternity in hell, but you're also not welcome into eternal life. And that's not true deliverance. True deliverance is is when there's that perfect harmony restored where God and man dwell together again just as they did before sin entered the equation. Now, the very fact that the Catechism asks about deliverance, it shows us something about God. It directs us to the fact that He is not just a just God, but He's also a merciful God. He's compassionate, compassionate, gracious, abounding in love and forgiveness, and it is because of that aspect of His character that the Lord does allow for deliverance from His judgment even to be an option. Brothers and sisters, God is not obligated to even open the doors for deliverance. God would have been perfectly just If after the fall into sin, he had simply executed his just judgment upon Adam and Eve and their descendants. But the very fact that God allows this one door to be open for deliverance, it shows his mercy, his compassion. And that's where we see the motivation that lies behind deliverance. It has nothing to do with man at all, but everything to do with God. Think of what we read in Romans 2 verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, when it comes to sinful man, God is incredibly patient. He doesn't simply give full expression to his anger. He gives man ample opportunity to repent and to enjoy the deliverance that he has allowed. For the sake of the glory of his name, which is what we'll sing in Psalm 79 after the sermon, the Lord does allow for deliverance to be an option. There is a way to escape from temporal and eternal punishment. There is a way to be returned to God's favor. It is good news for the sinner who deserves nothing but God's judgment. But what Scripture and confession also make clear is that when it comes to deliverance, this is not just a free for all, it's not something in which man has a say as the two sides come together for negotiations. Deliverance is entirely based on God's terms alone. We come to our second point. When it comes to deliverance from punishment and the return to God's favor, the Catechism immediately makes things clear. And it begins with the fact that God is not going to compromise from his side. God is not going to lower his standard. God will not simply sweep the sins of man under the rug and pretend it never happened. Answer 12 states that right at the beginning. God demands that his justice be satisfied. And there's the terms for deliverance very clearly marked out. For man to escape from punishment and to be received back into favor, God's justice must be satisfied. And the confession explains this further in the second statement of answer 12. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. There's some interesting language in this part of the answer that can be drawn out. In the first place, notice how throughout Lord's Day 5, there's also an emphasis on payment. Is there an answer 12, question 13, and question 14? It's another one of the main themes in this Lord's Day. It's because there's a direct connection between payment and deliverance. Deliverance comes only through payment. There are no backroom deals that can be made proper payment must be offered and it comes out again in answer 13 where it speaks about an increase of debt debts don't just disappear on their own for the most part you may be able to think of some examples where that happens but in most cases when there is a debt then the person owing will have to make payment in order for that debt to be paid off It's not just a little bit of payment that has to be made either. It's the whole thing. Full payment, as answer 12 states. A partial payment is insufficient. A partial payment will not satisfy the justice of the God who is perfectly righteous and holy. It's true, we've heard this before. But we have to note that point because our human nature as such loves to bargain, we want to negotiate on things. That idea of escape from punishment, return to favor, that's a wonderful concept. There's not a single person in this world who would reject that. But for sinful man, it becomes a matter of how can we now get this in the easiest or the cheapest way? Well, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. The terms are already laid out. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. So that is the only payment that God will accept. It's the only payment that will fully satisfy His justice. There's no getting around that fact. And again, we can go back to what was confessed in Lord's Day 4. God's justice demands that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. This is not a suggestion. This is not as though God is saying, okay, here's my terms, now you come back and offer something different. This is the demand of His justice. And since His justice will never change, it's the full payment God requires. Temporal punishment alone is insufficient. There needs to be the eternal aspect to the punishment because that's how offended God is by our sin. It cannot only be punishment of the body, there also needs to be punishment of the soul. It's not as though a person can be flogged and it would be enough. Their soul also must be punished. For God's justice to be satisfied. And there's one other thing from answer 12 that we need to take note of. This payment has to be something that we make either through our, by ourselves or through another. This payment has to be something in which we are connected either we have to make the full payment God requires or we have to make that payment through another but if it's going to be an other who makes the payment for us there has to be a connection between us and the one doing the paying if someone is going to make the payment for us what needs to happen is that they must take our sins upon themselves and are punished for those sins they have to be associated with our guilt and they cannot keep their distance from that ugly mess If the person making the payment has no association with our sins, it actually does us no good. Because then our sin is not paid for in any way. Then God's justice against sin is not satisfied. In order for deliverance to be truly granted, sin has to be taken away from us, and full payment for it has to be made. So what Lord's Day 5 makes very clear is that while deliverance is a most marvelous gift that God does allow for, it's not cheap, it's not easy. Deliverance is something that abides by His perfect standard. It does not come through God compromising with us in any way. God remains true to His character. And as we mentioned earlier, our human nature doesn't like that. Our human nature wants to bargain. We want God to meet us on our terms. We want to set the way for deliverance. We want to dictate to God how deliverance should be made. And that's because ultimately our way of deliverance stems from our sinful heart We want the means for deliverance that actually requires nothing from us in a difficult way. We want a means for deliverance in which God just ignores everything, where God just lets everything go. But it's an incredibly dangerous way of thinking because what it really shows is that hard and rebellious heart of man who wants to continue enjoying sin in the present while not having to face the consequences of sin now or ever. Well, Paul makes it clear where that hard and impenitent heart leads. Think of what we read in Romans two, verse five. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Brothers and sisters, trying to negotiate with the perfectly just and holy God will never work. It leaves one apart from the deliverance God so mercifully allows for, facing only the wrath of God revealed in its fullest measure when the living and the dead appear before his throne. When it comes to the deliverance, it's God's way, or it's no way. It's through the means God allows for, or there's nothing. True deliverance is take it or leave it. True deliverance is about the one provider of deliverance. We come to our third point with the terms for deliverance laid out the question then turns to the matter who's going to offer that payment and what our confession makes clear in questions 13 and 14 is that this might not be as easy as we first thought In the first place, no person is able to make payment for themselves on account of the fact that they daily increase their debt. That's a humbling reality. Every day that passes, we only make ourselves more deserving of God's righteous judgment. We only dig a deeper hole. And Paul also works with this in our scripture reading. These verses were quoted earlier, but they bear repeating. Beginning in verse 8, he writes that for the one who obeys unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. So while we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another, we can't even begin to make any part of the payment for ourselves. It's also what we'll sing of in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? there's one door closed. And while we can't make payment for ourselves, it's also not the case that any mere creature can step into our place either. Confession gives two reasons for this. Answer 14, in the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. When God created this world, there were different levels of creatures created. Man was the crown of creation. Man alone was made in the image of God. God's not going to take a creature from lower in the created order and allow that creature to pay for sin which man has committed. And it's something that actually makes a great deal of sense when we work this out. Think of what the Lord says in Ezekiel 18 verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, The soul who sins shall die. It's that last part that really needs some attention. The soul who sins shall die. Notice that it's not the person who sins shall die. The Lord specifically speaks about the soul. And while he's referring to the fact that the person who sins is accountable for their sin, there's a point that applies to what we confess in Lord's Day 5. If you go back to creation, Genesis 2 verse 7, when God creates man, he breathes into man the breath of life and the man becomes a living creature. And that word for creature is the word that is also translated as soul. With creation, God gave man a soul, but it was only given to man. Nowhere do we read of all the different animals receiving a soul in the same way. It's true if you look at Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12, it talks about the spirit of the beast. It's an entirely different word altogether. Well, God's justice requires punishment of body and soul. So any creature that does not bear a soul in the same way that man does can't make the punishment God requires. And the second reason, No mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath and deliver others from it. Brothers and sisters, you only have to turn to Scripture, and there's some terrifying descriptions of God's wrath. It's a consuming fire. It's a fire that no creature can bear for himself, let alone deliver others from the fire. Another door closed. And we're left with what question and answer 15 presents. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? The answer, he must be true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, meaning he has to at the same time be true God. It makes the point that brings all of Lord's Day 5 together, God allows for deliverance only on His terms, and it's a deliverance that only God can obtain for His people. Deliverance from God's righteous judgment, a return to God's favor, is not a human invention. It does not come down to man's initiative. It is a divine matter. It comes through the one whom God provides. And though he is not mentioned yet in this Lord's Day, it is already clear that deliverance is found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because consider everything we've said about this deliverance so far in the sermon. We noted that deliverance could come through another only if that other bore our sins and took them upon himself. It's exactly what the Son of God has done. Isaiah 53 verse 11. It says concerning the suffering servant, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The same thing comes out in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians 2. God has made us alive. He's forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, not sweeping it under the rug, but nailing it to the cross. There on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the sins of all God's people. He was punished in our place, So that as we live in the time of God's patience, we might use that time wisely, namely in repentance, as Paul writes in Romans 2. It is fleeing to the foot of the cross, seeking deliverance, seeking forgiveness there alone. And we also mention that God's justice demands that sin be punished both in body and soul. It highlights the Lord Jesus suffering for us. There was the physical suffering he endured before Pontius Pilate, as he was flogged, as he had the crown of thorns pressed upon his head. There was the agony of being nailed to the cross, suffering the horror of being crucified. But even more than the physical suffering, there was the suffering of his soul, as he was forsaken by his father, during those three hours of darkness. And in that time, he experienced nothing of the father's love, nothing of the father's blessing, but only the heavy weight of God's wrath against our sin, which had been placed upon him. Deliverance comes by fleeing to the foot of the cross, repenting of our sin, seeking forgiveness through the blood of God's own Son offered in our place. Only through Jesus Christ is there escape from judgment. Only through Christ is there a return to God's favor. Earlier we noted from Psalm 130, there are none who could stand if the Lord would count our sins and trespasses. But it's striking to note that the psalm does not end with that sense of sorrow or any idea of hopelessness. It closes with the full joy of salvation ringing out because God provides the way of deliverance. With the Lord is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Brothers and sisters, God's judgment upon sin is very real he is just he will not compromise his justice in any way but at the same time he is merciful and through his son has provided the way of deliverance it's in christ that we can escape from the judgment that we so that we deserve it's in christ that we are restored to god's favor and so we as his chosen congregation shall give him thanks through every generation. Amen.